For many Western travelers, planning a trip to the eastern half of Europe can be like trying to visit the dark side of the moon. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Even though the fall of communism came a generation ago, many Americans never get past the safe bets, like Prague and Budapest. But travelers who venture further east into the countries of the former Soviet bloc can expect to find a warm welcome and a rewarding cultural experience. When they see somebody from America, they're like, wow, this is something different. And so they roll out the red carpet. They're happy to cook you dinner or happy to walk you through the park. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Francis Tapon tells us about his three years couch-surfing his way around each of the countries in the eastern half of Europe. It's surprisingly wide open, and it's gotten wider. And we'll start the hour checking in with listeners, looking for a little help planning their next big vacation. From the far east of Europe to wherever your travel dreams may take you, let's venture together. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're looking east for the new frontiers in European travel today on Travel with Rick Steves. In just a bit, Francis Tapon shares his observations from more than three years of winging it through every country in the eastern half of Europe, including some of the rough-and-tumble former Soviet republics. First, let's check in with a few listeners at 877-333-7425 to hear what issues they're working on and how they're making their vacation plans and if Eastern Europe might play into them. Mike's on the phone in Ellicott City, Maryland. Mike, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. It's good to talk to you. My wife and I have, have really been inspired by your TV shows to take our kids to Europe next summer. Uh, we have a 19-year-old, 15, and a 15-year-old twin. And so our plan is to spend hopefully about six weeks there, including London, Paris, Madrid, Rome, Italy, uh, Germany, Switzerland, just kind of the whole the whole thing, the whole circuit you've got there. And so... What we're kind of wondering as we're trying to put together a budget is, even if you leave out airfare for purposes of this discussion, uh, what would be a realistic budget for a family of five planning to spend six weeks traveling around Europe to the places that I've mentioned? I know it's a, a broad question, but... Yeah, let me think about the different um, elements of your budget. You've got a family of five, a uh, six-week right. trip. You, your wife, 19-year-old, and two 15-year-olds. It's really a tour, Mike, and you're the tour guide, and you have to be thinking, like a tour organizer, what can give you the economy of scale? You know, when it comes to transportation, putting five people in a car is a lot cheaper than buying five train tickets. And when you're in town, uh, five people packed into a taxi can be cheaper than five bus tickets or five subway tickets. So whenever you can pay for one vehicle to move you all around instead of buying five tickets, that's a good idea. Also, this sort of group think goes for getting information. You know, you can go to a museum and you can rent uh, one audio um, tour wand and it'll have a jack, a universal jack in it. You can bring a splitter and two people can share the cost of that audio wand by having two sets of earbuds and you'll cut your costs in half that way. Or with a family of five, I would say... Seriously consider hiring private guides here and there as you go because it's quite expensive for one person. But if you think of all the fun, having your own private guide meet you at the hotel, tailor the trip or the walk, the historic walk or whatever to your family's interests. You got two teenage boys. When you hire the guide with your email correspondence, mention you got three teenagers and they'll uh, sort of shape the historic guided walk to their interests. You'll find that hiring local guides uh, here and there throughout your trip will save you a lot of money. Now, think about accommodations also. Um, I've noticed one thing. In fact, I'm sort of pulling back on dumpy little low-end hotels and pensions in favor of modern institutional youth hostels. I always say youth hostel because I've just for 30 years been thinking in terms of youth hostels. But in the last decade, they've taken the word youth off the name, and they're just hostels. And they are looking for business. They're wide open for families. And if you can find a hostel that has a six-bed dorm room and just book it for your family of five, you've got very inexpensive accommodations there. Added bonus of that, your kids can hang out with other teenagers in the rec room, and you can hang out with other teachers and parents, and you've got a kitchen where you can cook for the price of groceries. And that's not only going to save you a lot of money, but it's a great opportunity for your teenagers to meet other travelers and for your family to meet other families. And plus, that gives you the fun of cooking together and actually shopping together in the market. So I would really consider hosteling as a family. Uh, if that's a little bit too public for you and you want a little more privacy, 
you could look into renting an apartment. And apartments, they can be a little pricey for couples, but for a family of five in an apartment, that's a great way to go. And I've found all over Europe, apartments are popping up as people are scrambling to make ends meet, and they've got an extra apartment that they're not using. They open it up and and rent it out to tourists. So take advantage of the economy of scale by renting an apartment or take advantage of the hostel association's interest in just taking care of the needs of families, and you'll save a lot of money in that area as opposed to renting two or three hotel rooms. I'll promise you, the more people you pack into a room when it comes to accommodations, the cheaper it's going to get. Right. So can you try to give me some sort of ballpark figure for that kind of trip? I I would say if you have $100 per person plus transportation, that'll be comfortable. You need to figure out your transportation. And after that, room and board and sightseeing, if if you enjoy this economy of scale that I'm talking about, I would say $100 per person should do it. But uh, you're going to have to check carefully on, you know, the cost of your accommodations and so on. But you pull this off, and your kids are going to have an incredible experience, and I'm, I hope that uh, it'll likely be so much fun that it'll be rich family memories as well. Well, I, I think so, too. This this is, of course, our kids are getting older, and this will be probably our last real good chance to take a big vacation with all of us. And well, so, Mike, my parents dragged me to Europe for the first time when I was 14 years old. I remember distinctly not wanting to go, and it was a trip that changed my life. I'm so thankful they had the wherewithal and the, and the determination to, to get me outside of my little shell here and to open up to the world. And your 15-year-old twins, that is a perfect age to give them the opportunity to see a little bit of life outside of our beautiful country. Good luck on your trip, Mike. All right. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Bye now. Bye. We're checking in with listeners now on Travel with Rick Steves to see what they're up to as they plan their next vacation. Sally's on the line in Coopville, Washington. Sally, how are you doing? Good, Rick. Hello. Uh, Some years ago, Croatia was rather undiscovered in a great deal, and now I'm wondering what country or countries are currently some of the less discovered jewels or bargain countries. And then, secondly, I'm wondering which would be your top pick, Eastern European country or countries and why? Boy, you know, it's exciting as travelers are opened up to Eastern Europe, and it's the sort of tide of comfort is moving east. And Croatia used to be the budget frontier. Now Croatia is quite developed and fairly touristy, and it's a great place to travel, but it's it's not quite the budget destination it used to be, and it's not quite the exotic adventure it used to be. I would say the new Croatia might be Bulgaria. I love traveling in Bulgaria. Mm. It's a, a warm and welcoming place, and not many people go there, and it's surprisingly diverse and interesting from a travel point of view. Also, um, Poland is, is a place that doesn't get as much attention as it should, and I think a lot of people, when they go to Poland, are very, very pleasantly surprised by that. I know that when we think of Czechoslovakia, you know, the former country that was split up, Everybody goes to the Czech Republic, and I love going to the Czech Republic. Much more subtle, much less expensive would be Slovakia. You might consider that as well. Mm. Uh, My friends who are really into former Yugoslavia love going to Montenegro, and Montenegro is opening up to tourism. It's a little bit rough as far as infrastructure for tourism goes, but it's also a little more of an adventure. Uh, And of course, Bosnia, the war is long past now, and Bosnia is healing up, and I find Bosnia a very inviting place, about half the price of Croatia, and uh, well worth checking out also. Uh, Basically, the farther east you go, I think, the less expensive, the less touristy, and the less uh, equipped to handle independent travelers. Not to say you shouldn't go to the Ukraine or Georgia, but those are really the frontier now of tourism, whereas Hungary, Slovenia, Croatia are becoming sort of old hat and, and used to the tourism. Hmm. So uh, Ukraine and Georgia, you would also recommend? One of my uh, workmates just got back from a beautiful experience in Georgia, and she loved it. And more and more people are talking about the Ukraine. I've not been to either of those places, but uh, the point is they are becoming more and more um, comfortable for travelers to visit. Remember, much of Eastern Europe is uh, part of the EU. You don't even need a, a visa to cross in, and almost anywhere in Eastern Europe these days, there's just two or three countries that still require a visa, and you can generally get that at the border. You'll be surprised how easy it is to travel deeper into Eastern Europe. Mm, Good to know. Thank you, Ray. Yeah. All right. Thanks for your call, and good luck in your plans. Thank you. 
Patricia is on the line in Beaverton, Oregon. Patricia, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call, Rick. I have a question about renting a car and driving through Eastern Europe. So I was wondering if it's possible to rent a car and make a loop through Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, Slovenia, Croatia, and south towards Albania? Or would it be better to take the train or bus? My husband and I are thinking of an extended trip through these countries. We've driven through Turkey and Greece and parts of Western Europe on previous trips. So uh, driving through that part of the continent is not new to us. Right. Uh, Patricia, what country are you thinking of picking up your car in? Well, I thought about picking it from Istanbul. Mm -hmm. We uh, picked up a car from Istanbul before, but then driving from Istanbul to Bulgaria and probably through Sofia, that's a long drive, and I don't know if if there's anything to see. Okay, here's, here's my thoughts on that. First of all, you've got to look very carefully into extra fees and where you are allowed to cross a border with a rental car. There's a, right. There's a real issue in Eastern Europe of theft. Sometimes they don't want you crossing a border. Sometimes you'll be required to pay for theft insurance, whereas you wouldn't be concerning with that if you're renting a car in France or Ireland or something like this. Also, you know, you're not going to get to the border of Denmark, and if you rent a car in Belgium and they'll tell you you can't get in, you're very likely to get to the border of Albania or Montenegro or something and, and realize, oh, this car can't go in there. So make that really explicit and clear if you're going to rent a car. Also remember that international drop-off fees can be really prohibitively expensive. Sometimes they can be um, just a nominal fee, but sometimes they can be hundreds of dollars. So get clear information from your car rental company on the cost of dropping the car in a different country. I love to do that because it's very much more efficient than driving all the way back to Istanbul or whatever, but find out what that's going to cost you. My hunch is you would be better off flying, taking trains, taking buses, and renting cars with drivers, hiring a driver guide to take you around in these countries here and there, lacing them together with train rides or budget airfares, or renting cars from capitals and just traveling in that country for a few days with the car. That would probably make the most sense. I also want to remind you that a car is a worthless and expensive headache in big cities. You wouldn't want to have a rental car parked in Istanbul or Bucharest or Budapest or Zagreb uh, because you don't want it in the big city. And you might want to consider doing the cities without a car and then choose an area that makes sense to have a car. The Slovenian Alps would be great or the villages of Transylvania in Romania would be great to have a car and then rent a car in that area just for that area. Thanks very much. That's Yeah, I'll follow through on those suggestions. Good, but I I think the trains are so efficient, flights are so cheap, cars can be such a headache that I think it might make more sense to be a little more localized with your car and think in terms of public transportation to lace those countries together. Thanks for your call, Patricia. Thank you. A room with a view and you And no one to worry us No one to hurry us through This dream we found Up next, Francis Tapon shares his observations from three years of travels in Eastern Europe. And he tells us what we can learn from the country's few Westerners ever visit. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Well, Italy, France, the UK, Germany, and Spain all have tremendous appeal for visitors from all over the world. About half of Europe remains off the radar, practically hidden from view when most of us plan our travels. When Francis Tapon first ventured east of the former Iron Curtain, he ended up spending three years exploring every country in the eastern half of Europe. The book he wrote about what he found is an invigorating narrative 
packed with useful tips and colorful stories. It's called The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europe Can Teach Us. Francis, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. So you call your book The Hidden Europe. Uh, Why do you say that? Because most of the time when Americans and other people say, oh, that's so European or that food reminds me of Europe, we're always thinking about Western Europe and we're not thinking about the other side of Europe, the hidden Europe, Eastern Europe. And so that's why I called it that way because I wanted to discover it. Even though the, the wall came down over 20 years ago, the Berlin Wall, it's still a mysterious area. I, I loved the uh, the way you set it up in your book because you reminded us that, you know, Europe stretches all the way to the Ural Mountains. That's well into Russia. And then if you were to stretch from Ireland to the Ural Mountains and cut it in half, it's kind of uh, coincidental that the Iron Curtain is pretty close to that halfway mark, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. It's uh, interesting and coincidental that it runs roughly where you could divide geographically Europe in half. Now, what do Eastern Europeans think about being called... Eastern Europeans? In general, they don't like it, except for maybe Romanians, Ukrainians, Moldovans, Belarusians. For the most part, everybody else in what I would characterize as Eastern Europe are not great fans of being Eastern Europe. If you tell Hungarians that they're in Eastern Europe, Czech people or Polish people or people in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, in general, they dislike the term, and mainly because they feel it still carries some negative connotations. So what would they call themselves? They would tend to call themselves either Central Europeans, Northern Europeans, Southern Europeans, anything else but Eastern European. It was funny, in your book you said Moldovans are just happy that you know they exist. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It is true. (laughs) It's got to be one of the most obscure corners of Europe. It's actually, it's sort of like beyond Romania. Romania is sort of like mainstream, and then there's this humble little country (laughs) just to the east of Romania that most people couldn't find on a map, Moldova. Tell us about Moldova. Moldova is the poorest country in Europe. It is it's small. They basically speak a language that's almost identical to Romanian, which is a Latin language, which is actually a curious thing because most people who think about Eastern Europe think about Slavic languages, but uh, Romanian is actually much more akin to Italian, French, hmm. or Spanish. In Moldova, the other characteristic that kind of sets it apart is it has the biggest winery. It's actually the biggest alcohol consumer on the planet as far as per capita. They drink over 18 liters per person per year, which is by far the most uh, alcohol consumption per capita. And they also have the biggest winery on Earth. Uh, It's about 160 miles long, Rick. Whoa. It has a capacity of storing 4 million bottles of wine. It sounds like they they enjoy that, and but they're also a very uh, poor country. You mentioned the subtitle, as a matter of fact, for your chapter on Moldova is uh, Poor, Torn, and Drunk. Okay, so they drink a <laughs> lot, and they're very poor. I think uh, $2,500 a year is the average income. Uh, what did you mean by torn? Torn in the sense that their identity is torn between A, being Moldovan versus Romanian, and also because they have this river that divides the Slavic side, the Prunt River, which divides Romania and Moldova. But there's also the Slavic side, which has Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians, Mm. who have separated. It's called Transnistria, beyond the Nister River. Mm. And so the people in the eastern part of Moldova don't even want to be. So in that sense, it's, it's a country it's torn in two. Uh, they had a civil war about 20 years ago. It was a small civil war. People died because the Transnistria section of Moldova wanted to separate from the Romanian-slash-western part of Moldova. What a discouraging sort of situation. And you made the very interesting comment in in your book, the less desirable a country, the more difficult it is to get in. Yeah, that's true. For example, in Belarus, it's not exactly a tourist hotspot. And yet you have to go through the whole visa process, which can be tedious. And and you get to Belarus. I mean, it's interesting, but it's not like, wow, it's not like you're going to France or Italy. It's And yet... It is somewhat of a tedious process in order to get those visas. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Francis Tepon, and Francis's book is The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. So when we think about Eastern Europe, Francis, well, of course, the former Soviet Union is a lot of different states, and that would be, without any doubt, Eastern Europeans, we Americans kind of conveniently have the Iron Curtain to define, you know, the West and the and the communist half, which we think of as East. But as you mentioned, most of Eastern Europe would rather call itself 
Central Europe or, or Northern Europe, why do Americans just go to the West? I mean, it's like we don't know anything about Belarus or, or Romania in, in most cases. The short answer is because, in general, it's safer and prettier and more developed tourist destinations in the Western Europe versus Eastern Europe. That's the simple answer. The other thing is simply just a legacy from the communist time when we were just prohibited. It was very difficult to go to Eastern Europe. And so I think a lot of that has just lingered. And people kind of look at a map and they say, oh, uh, hmm. do we really want to go to a strange-sounding place like Slovenia? And of course, you've been to Slovenia. It's super tame and it's very safe. And yet a lot of people, just because it sounds different or, or you have remnants of, let's say, the Bosnian War, so you hear Bosnia, they're not too interested in that region. But in the end, that's just a myth. I mean, it's very safe in Eastern Europe, and it has some amazing sites for tourists to visit. One of the charms of Western Europe is its diversity, and uh, we may think of bleak, you know, Cold War Eastern Europe is pretty much uh, all the same, but it's quite diverse also. How would you compare the diversity of Eastern Europe uh, with that of the West? It's equal, I would say, in the sense that you have roughly 25 different languages that are around there, so you have a huge linguistic variation. Even though Slavic languages do dominate, they are not necessarily easy to understand between them. So if you speak Bulgarian, you're not necessarily going to be able to understand anybody speaking Russian. Would you say, Francis, that um, we know that Germanic languages like German, Norwegian, Dutch, English are all related, but you can't really speak each other's languages. Are Slavic languages more closely related, or are they equivalent of Germanic languages? That's a really good question. I would say that it's a fairly similar analogy, especially because in the Slavic languages you have the Cyrillic alphabet used, and sometimes and other times it's the Latin alphabet. And so I think that that can make it difficult. For example, Croatians and Serbians speak the same language, hmm. and yet they use totally different alphabets. And so that can for some people, feel like a totally different language. Now, you spent three years in Eastern Europe visiting all 25 countries. Uh, if we're dreaming about Eastern Europe, and it is a new frontier, I have to say, reading through your book, my traveler's little wheels were spinning like mad because there's so many places I, I can barely find on the map. What sort of red tape, what sort of visas, what sort of frustrations and hurdles are there for those of us who have pretty much done Western Europe? Is it wide open, or is it going to be a lot more complicated and frustrating to go to all 25 countries in Eastern Europe? It's surprisingly wide open, and it's gotten wider since I've written my book. For example, in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Bulgaria, and Slovenia, Hungary, they're all part of the EU, so it's just as easy to go from France and Spain as going uh, between a lot of these, you know, going into Poland. It's part of the EU, so there's border-free travel. So the majority, I would say, of Eastern Europe, or at least half of Eastern Europe, you're going to not even require any kind of visa, not even show your passport when you're crossing the border. So that's pretty easy. Now, there's a couple of places where you need a visa right at the border, like in Albania, for example. Uh, Ukraine used to require a visa. So did Moldova. Neither of them require visas anymore. You just show your passport. Boom, you're in. And so the only country at this point that really is kind of a slight pain in the butt for Americans is Turkey or Russia or Belarus. Those are the, the only ones that are kind of difficult. For, so it's quite easy nowadays. That's quite striking. So you can just get on a train in Poland and, and head over into the Ukraine. That's right. Wow. And in fact, that's what they did last summer during the Euro Cup. I just heard a report on that, and they spent a billion dollars or something trying to make Ukraine feel like as welcoming and, and together as Western Europe, and apparently uh, they failed. What was the result of that? Ukraine had its window there where everybody took a look at it. They had this big international sporting event. How did that shake out? Yeah, Ukraine is a country that's still kind of struggling in many ways. Uh, they have still a political system that they've had their former prime minister still in jail. They've had their share of problems. And so they made a great effort. Ukraine was not able to host its games as efficiently as, let's say, London was able to host the Olympics. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Francis Tapon, and Francis's book is The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. And Francis, you had uh, one chapter for every country in Eastern Europe, and at the end of each chapter, a wonderful sidebar on exactly what that little country, or big country, can teach us. In general, what can Eastern Europe teach us? I would say that they have a certain toughness within the population. They're very 
resilient people. They've endured, for example, in the 20th century, it was one of the toughest centuries for, for any place on the planet was in Eastern Europe to be there. And so I think a lot of that culture and that strength has existed in them. And that's one thing that we can learn. A lot of times in America, we can be whiny about certain things. And if you look into Eastern Europeans, they're a lot tougher. Another thing that's kind of interesting is the fact that we have a tendency to look at depopulation as a negative thing. In Eastern Europe, it's the fastest depopulating region in the world. And if you think about the environmental problems that we have, and one of the easiest solutions to solving it is having a lowering of our population. And that's what's happening throughout Eastern Europe right now. And that's something actually we could learn and how to continue to have an economy that's working and have people still employed in this declining economy and not have a panic attack. And, uh, oh, now we need to reproduce very quickly. So that's another thing that I think that we can generally learn from Eastern well, Europeans. you got, what, 100 million, 200 million Eastern Europeans. They've got a population that is declining. Is that because they are getting better educated and they're all of a sudden capitalistic and they can work hard and be selfish and have another car instead of another child? Or is that because they're so bleak and discouraged that they just don't want to bring another person into the world? I think it's that started even in communism. In other words, they had a fairly low birth rate even under communism. And part of that was economic. They just didn't have the money that they could afford to have lots of children. On the other hand, makes me wonder because Africans have a lot of children and they have less money than a lot of Eastern Europeans. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's only financial, but that was mm -hmm. part of the motivation. Um, but I do agree with you that because the state isn't able to support itself with all the state funding operations and all the schools, et cetera, that as a result, a lot of people can't afford to have the children in order to send them off to all these schools and pay for their food and that kind of stuff. So a lot of it has been economically driven. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Francis Tapon, and Francis's book is The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. Francis, we were talking about what Eastern Europe can teach us and the hardships they've lived through. It was fascinating in your book when you compared how Belarus was really just demolished by World War II and, and how to put that into relative terms in the United States. Can you talk about that a little bit? In other words, what if America was hurt as badly as Belarus was in World War II? Yeah, it's pretty uh, phenomenal. It's imagine if 100 million Americans were to die. That's basically puts it in perspective right there. Um, 100 million Americans, that's over a third of our population. That's what happened in, in Belarus. Imagine if you could that three-fourths of our cities were in ruins. So imagine Chicago, New York, Miami, L.A., Dallas, Seattle, San Francisco, all these cities in ruin. And imagine also if most of our lakes and rivers were contaminated and that 85% of our schools and universities were destroyed, imagine if D.C. were flattened and the Washington Monument was lying on its side. That's what Belarus went through. You can imagine what kind of impact that would have on the character of the culture of the people. And so that makes them so resilient, I think, in the 21st century today. I've noticed when you travel in Eastern Europe now, enough time has gone by where they can have museums that are candid, looking back at communism, at the secret police, at World War II, at concentration camps, at prisons, and so on. All over Eastern Europe, new and, and quite inspirational museums are opening up. What are some of your favorite uh, museums covering the tumultuous 20th century history that Eastern Europeans have uh, struggled through? Well, definitely the one in Belarus and Minsk, the capital, was quite uh, graphic and revealing. The other one that would be on the list is the Museum of Occupation in Riga in Latvia. It's a great depiction of the centuries of occupation that Latvia has undergone. Yeah, I just think that if you love World War II history and you're into the struggles and the triumphs and the tribulations of Eastern Europeans, uh, boy, you go to those museums in Budapest, they've got the statue park where they've dragged and, and saved really all the statues that were once on the main squares, ranting and raving and keeping the people down. Are there any other statue parks in Eastern Europe that save all of this social realistic art? Yeah, in Lithuania, you'll find one as well in Vilnius uh, or near Vilnius, uh, the, what they call the Mushroom King. Uh, this is a man who made his fortune with mushrooms. He decided to preserve a lot of these fallen, iconic communist statues and memorabilia. And even they serve you, they dress up in the old Soviet outfits, and they have people come up and serve you Soviet meals. It's like a blast from the past. 
You know, that's interesting when you talk about that because I felt there's a little bit of nostalgia in Eastern Europe for the communist times. Not that they would go back to those times, but there were some fond memories of communist times. And I've even found theme restaurants serving dreary food from the 1960s. It's so true, actually. I agree with you completely, Rick. In Eastern Europe, you have, especially among the older generation, people who are quite nostalgic about that period of time. And you're right. At the same time, most people, except for maybe the older generation, but most people don't want to go back to those times. But they talk about how it was very safe on the streets, the fact that everybody was taken care of, the fact that people had jobs and food and they had their houses. And there was a lot of tranquility in that period. And now with free market capitalism, they have to work a little bit harder at this. And there is a greater poverty and greater crime. And so a lot of people are kind of nostalgic for some of the upsides of the communist period. But overall, I would say they're not interested in going back 100%. I think they're moving forward. And, and the generation that took the brunt of it is the older generation. But the younger generation has a time of, of hope and a reason to work and, and move forward. Let's be a little bit negative here for a moment. If you think about Eastern Europe, which countries just felt the most lawless or corrupt or or baffling or frustrating? Well, statistically, if you look at the corruption of Transparency International, they will put Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine at the bottom of the list as far as corruption and, and as far as red tape and that kind of stuff. And I found in my personal experience that is largely true as well. There is still a fair amount of that. However, for the average tourist, you're not going to run into it as much as, let's say, somebody who's trying to make a living there. And so it exists. It can be kind of tedious. But overall, you're somewhat insulated as a tourist visitor going through those countries. But if you're going to see it somewhere, it will be there. I did talk to some visitors, travelers who have this issue of getting shaken down by cops who look over for bribes in Ukraine. But I, it never happened to me, and I spent a lot of time in Ukraine. So one of their advices, don't open your mouth when you see a cop coming by, because if they hear you start speaking English, they'll say, ah, oh, this is a good opportunity for me to shake this guy down and try to get a bribe out of them. More with Francis Tapon and your calls as our overview of Eastern Europe continues on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Or post your travel stories and comments online in our radio message board at ricksteves.com. Kasia, can you teach a tongue twister in Polish? With pleasure. What's Are you ready? Szczebrzeszynie, chrząż brzmi w trzcinie, a szczebrzeszyn z tego słynie, że tam sobie chrząż brzmi w trzcinie. What did you say in English, Kasia? I mean, in English it goes, it's quite a ridiculous line. Uh, there is a cricket playing its songs in the town of Szczebrzeszyn, and he's having a lot of fun doing this. <laughs> say it again, Kasia. Thank you very much. We're exploring the different societies in Eastern Europe and how they can stoke our travel thrills today on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Francis Tapon. He's written up an entertaining summary of his observations on spending time in each of 25 different countries in the eastern half of the continent. His book is called The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. 
and his website is francistapon.com. That's spelled F-R-A-N-C-I-S-T-A-P-O-N. So tell me if this is a general statement, but it seems like if you're considering corruption, lawlessness, uh, lousy hygiene, uh, lousy diet, bureaucracy that's just really frustrating, when you go from west to east, it gets worse, and the worst area would be the states of the former Soviet Union, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. I would generally agree with that, and I'd also say that there's also some chaos that happens as you go south as well. So if you go mm-hmm. to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, it's pretty controlled right. and and stable. But as you go into the Balkans, things start to become a little bit more chaotic and a little bit more free-for-all. And I think you could make the same case about former Yugoslavia. If you move from Slovenia down to Serbia and Macedonia, it would be getting more and more in need of uh, modernization. But maybe that's good news because slowly the development and the organization and the progress is like a rising tide. It's moving east because when you think of Slovenia, Hungary, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and Poland, these are countries that are, from an infrastructure point of view now, are are almost on par with the West, and they're getting it together in in all the other ways that would bring a, a society a lot of reason to be hopeful. I agree 100%. In some cases, they're actually overtaking the West. If you look at Estonia, for example, they've been paying their taxes. Uh, they have a flat tax rate that doesn't take a lot of time for them to actually do it. I've never met Estonian who took more than five minutes to do their taxes. They vote on the internet. Four Estonians invented Skype. Hmm. And they even pay each other using their cell phones. And so if, let's say, Rick, I owe you 20 bucks, I just send 20 bucks through my cell phone to your cell phone. And that's how they do it in Estonia. I noticed from your book that uh, you met a lot of beautiful women. I don't know the backstory of that, but tell us just about romance on the road if you happen to be a single person traveling through Eastern Europe. Right. You know, when you travel as a solo person, whether you're male or female, inevitably you're going to meet somebody and meet people. And I think it's natural if you spend three years in any region on the planet, eventually you're going to find some people who you have chemistry with. And in my case, I also was purposely trying to interact with everybody. Whoever was sitting next to me on a bus or a train, I would be interacting with. In some, a few cases, it actually the romance would develop. Uh, it, was, it was rare, but uh, always a welcome thing when you're sitting out away from home for three years. Would you hazard a, a general statement about where you found women most attractive? Yes. I will say Serbia and the Baltic, so Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Ukraine. And Ukraine. I've talked to a lot of Peace Corps workers, and all of them tell me that statistically, more Peace Corps volunteers, men, fall in love with a local woman in Bulgaria and stay there after they're done with the Peace Corps than any other country the Peace Corps works in. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that statistic. And for the female listeners out there, if you're looking for a very tall man, go to Serbia as well. Uh, Serbia or Montenegro, for example, they have just these men who are handsome and fit and strong and super tall men (laughs) that are out there. I always, I felt like a dwarf walking around the streets of Belgrade. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking romance in Eastern Europe with Francis Tapon. Francis's book is The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. I had so much fun reading through this book, and it covers every country, every corner of Eastern Europe with a beautiful, breezy style, with a fun, intimate report on how Francis enjoyed three years exploring Eastern Europe. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Donna's on the line in Yakima, Washington. Donna, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. I've done a lot of traveling in Eastern Europe, and what I learned was that the people there are usually um, friendlier and more um, gracious uh, to tourists than in uh, Western Europe. And so that's what I like about the um, Eastern Europe area. There's some truth to that, I would say, Rick, in the sense that if you're going to the deep Eastern Europe, let's say into Belarus or you're going into Moldova or Albania, these are places that they're just not used to seeing tourists like they are in Italy or France or Spain. And so as a result, when they see somebody from America, they're like, wow, this is something different. And so they roll out the red carpet. They're happy to host you. They're happy to cook you dinner or happy to walk you through the park. You try to do that in Paris, good luck. So, you know, no Parisian is going to be as friendly as, let's say, somebody in some of these countries that are just not used to seeing a lot of the tours. But having said that, Francis, you write in your book that uh, people are grumpy everywhere and smiling is seen as a weakness or a sign of stupidity. Is that just a a visual thing, or or how does that relate to how friendly they really are? 
Right. So they do start off in general as a, in a little bit colder sense. And then statistically, this bears out if you ask people, let's say Gallup asked people, did you smile and laugh a lot yesterday? The lowest countries in the planet were all Eastern European countries. And Serbia was the lowest on earth after actually Togo was a little bit worse. And so it does exist, but it's kind of a facade to some extent. And so they just, it takes some breaking through and eventually they will smile and open up. They treat themselves like that. In other words, mm-hmm. you'll see, let's say, a Russian going into a store, talking to a Russian person at the store. They'll be gruff with each other. What I'm trying to suggest is that as a tourist, you go there and you say, hi, I'm from America, and you're running around Belarus. It's quite possible that people will all of a sudden open up and feel a lot more friendly to you because of the fact that they're just not used to seeing you. All right. Hey, Donna, do you have a a travel plan for uh, your next trip to Eastern Europe? Um, Yes, I'd like to go to the countries of Moldova, uh, Belarus, and the area where Kaliningrad is at, the Russian Federation. Hmm. Yeah, those are great unknown hidden travel destinations. And so I think that uh, you'll do well. One place that you might want to check out is the Chernobyl exclusion zone, because it seems like you like to go to these hard to find places or very few tours actually go to. The Chernobyl exclusion zone is where the reactor blew up in 1986. And it's open to the public now. It's a relatively recent thing. It's You can go in through Ukraine. Uh, you might be able to also go in through Belarus, although I'm not 100% sure. And in Kaliningrad is actually another interesting part. It's a part of Russia that's disconnected from Russia. It's stuck between Lithuania and Poland. And it's also interesting because of its Germanic influence that still they've been managed to be able to preserve. And so Kaliningrad was a region that was mostly German. And yet after World War II, all the Germans were booted out and the Russians took it over. And so you see this interesting mix between the Russian culture and some of the Germanic architecture that still exists today. Francis, uh, Donna is going to be in the Ukraine. You mentioned in your book that the Ukraine is emerging as kind of like India as the source for uh, highly trained but inexpensive software labor and programmers and so on. Is Ukraine sort of catching on economically? It's moving in fits and starts. It's not been a slow, steady progression all the way uphill. They've had some pullbacks at times. But in general, if you compare Ukraine of 20 years ago to Ukraine today, they've been doing overall much better, and the standard of living overall for the people has improved compared to, let's say, the 1990s. And you're right. The fact is that they have a lot of labor that can be used for outsourcing projects. And as a result, a lot of Americans, I'm here in Silicon Valley, and a lot of people have used the Ukrainian workforce to develop a lot of the software that we use today on the Internet and beyond. And should Donna take a sauna in Belarus? (laughs) <laughs> she certainly should. Uh, I described a, a, an interesting sauna experience in my book, which is probably what you're alluding to. And it's a tradition out there, especially in Northern Europe. Uh, saunas are a big deal, and it's part of the experience. Try to take it if you can. It's probably a quarter of the price she'll spend in, in Finland. That's right. All right. Donna, good luck on your trip. Thank you so much, Rick. Thanks for your call. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with Francis Tapon, and Francis's book is The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. Francis, you spent three years over there, and from reading your book, I noticed you did a lot of couch surfing. Talk about couch surfing and how you found your accommodations in general. If you go to couchsurfing.org, it is a nonprofit website that allows you to meet other hosts in other countries And you can meet other travelers. So if you can decide to host people or you can decide to be a traveler or both. And so, for example, let's say you want to go to Latvia and you want to go to Riga. You can sign up, create a profile just like you would, let's say, in Facebook and create a profile. And then you would write to prospective hosts in Latvia. You would see their profile. After you stay with them, you would give them a review and you would say, was that experience positive, neutral or negative? And they do the same for you as a guest. And they rate you positive, neutral, and negative. And as a result, you build a reputation. So you'll see certain hosts, you say, oh, this person has 10 positive recommendations. And so obviously that host is probably somebody who's you know nice, gentle, and, and a good person. And likewise, they might see you and say, in my case, for example, I have over 100 positive references and I don't have any negative references. So somebody who's, let's say, a single female is not going to worry about whether I'm going to be a jerk or... A person is not going to worry about whether I'm going to steal from them. 
And so because my reputation, I have over 100 positive references, they know that's kind of safe. So that's what makes it safe is this kind of referencing system. And there's no money exchange at all. But as a guest, it is always good practice, like in any culture, to bring gifts, to do something nice, take your host out to dinner, cook for them, do something that is nice to show your appreciation, bring something from home, whatever it is, to show that you are grateful for their generosity of opening their home for you. It sounds like it's a wonderful way to meet people. You wrote about staying with an Orthodox priest in Serbia. That's right. That's, to me, the best part of traveling is actually meeting people, spending time with the families. And one thing that's great about Eastern Europe is that a lot of people live with their parents, their grandparents. And so you get to see multi-generations if you stay with a family there. So you'll get to meet the young people who actually speak English, which is great because they can be your conduit to their parents as well as their grandparents, who all live in the same house. And you can really get a sense of the culture, the food that they eat. And uh, it's a much more intimate and interesting experience than, let's say, just simply staying at a hotel. That's a good point. In Eastern Europe, there's a lot of uh, multi-generational families. It's just typical for, for people to marry and move in with one of the parents or the grandparents and then have kids. And, and it would offer a more interesting experience for the person who is visiting as a couch surfer. I would imagine also there's a lot of unemployed people or partially employed people that have time and a curiosity about Americans. Uh, were they willing to talk freely with you as, a, as an American guest in their home? In general, yes. I mean, in one case, for example, when I went to Belarus, it wasn't a couch surfing, but I met people on the street there, and I invited them back to my apartment. I had four people in there. And at first, they were a little bit reticent to talk about it because there's still a dictatorship going on in Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko. And so they were a bit reticent to share, but eventually they kind of opened up. But in general, people were, were more than happy to talk about their culture. And to me, that was the most wonderful part of the experience. And I tried to capture much as, as many of those experiences in my book. Did you find that people were sophisticated in their understanding of politics and economics? Or were they just polluted by their ethnic frustrations and all the baggage that comes from such a difficult uh, last couple of generations? In general, I was surprised that there is still a lot of prejudice and misinformation that goes on. I was found that particularly strong in the Balkans because of the fact that the wars had ended relatively recently, roughly 15 years ago. And so some of that misinformation still exists, and they have all sorts of myths and strange beliefs that persist. However, they have opened up and they have discovered it. But there's this skepticism in Eastern Europe, I would say, because when they were under communism, they were kind of cautious about whatever the government said to them and whatever statistic is out there. And so they've taken that to an extreme where they love conspiracy theories and everything has an ulterior and sinister explanation. And yes, sometimes that's true, but a lot of times it's not. And so it was kind of amusing to me at times to see just how far-fetched their theories, their alternative explanations of the world were. And so uh, that does exist in Eastern Europe, but that's part of the experience is to hear and, and see their perspective. And it's hard for most of us to imagine the incredible baggage they must have from the very difficult uh, last couple of generations they've had in their history. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Elaine's on the phone from Toronto. Elaine, thanks for your call. Thank you. Um, just an observation. We traveled to Eastern Europe. We did a road trip in 2006, and we were very surprised that uh, we had no trouble with speaking English in like small countries like Slovakia and Slovenia. Yet when we arrived in Budapest, big city, we thought it would be easier, and it was actually harder. So it was a very surprising thing for us. I'm not sure um, in other countries in Eastern Europe how prevalent is English. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in Hungary, it's actually they have the highest percentage of monoglots. That's roughly the same as the United States. And so there you have approximately 29% who are fluent in another language in Hungary which is roughly like the United States, which is 25%. And so that's why when you went to Budapest, you found very few, because most people only speak Hungarian in Hungary. Meanwhile, in Slovenia, it's 71% are trilingual. And so when you were in Slovenia, it's much easier, which is the third highest trilingual rate in Europe. Only the Netherlands and Luxembourg have higher rates of trilingualism in their countries. And so there are different pockets. But in general, I would say that it's hard to find English speakers, especially for people who are over 30 years old. And so if you are lost somewhere in Romania and you need somebody, look around for people who are under 30 and then ask for help in English. Right. That, that actually explains a lot because it was quite a shocker. It was, it was actually very challenging for us 
to get around and um, just find necessities in Budapest because of the barrier and because the language was so hard to pronounce and read compared to what we're used to, even though they're, you know, English letters. Yeah, so that's, that's very interesting. Thank you. Thanks for your call, Elaine. Thanks. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Francis Tapon, and Francis's book is The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. Francis, this has been an inspiration. I, I would imagine after uh, the experience you had there in writing this book, you may be dreaming of another trip. If you're heading back to Eastern Europe, what's, uh, what's next on your, on your list? If I'm going back to Eastern Europe, I really adore my favorite country in Eastern Europe is Montenegro. It's just a wonderful place to go to. And in fact, I encourage people also to go to Croatia as well. Um, for my next real big trip is going to Africa. I'm going to spend three years traveling through all 54 African countries, so averaging about three weeks per country. And I hope that to be the subject of my next book. That sounds fascinating. Be sure to let us know when you've got a report, and we'll dream about Africa. In the meantime, maybe we'll see you in Montenegro. Francis Tapon, The Hidden Europe. Thanks a lot, and happy travels. Thank you, Rick. For some of our listeners, their travels have inspired them to become a poet. Here are some recent haiku that we thought you'd like, sent to us by our listeners from a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Several listeners to Travel with Rick Steves from Oklahoma have written us haiku poems to describe their home state. Denise Sherritt from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, tells us what she likes best about her home state. Fields? Farmers, clean air, in the middle of nowhere, natural beauty. Katie Arroyo from Stillwater tells us that this haiku was created during one of the hottest, driest summers ever in Oklahoma. She wrote this after a glance out the window on a drive to Tulsa. Tree cast its shadow, cattle escape from the heat, prairie oasis. While Barbara Smallwood shares this memory from their vacation home on Grand Lake of the Cherokees in northeast Oklahoma. Tornadoes ripping trees, landscaped, changed forever. We survive. And you can send us your own travel impressions about your hometown or any place in the world. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our colleagues at KQED in San Francisco and to Keith Stickemeyer for reading today's travel haiku. We'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Eastern Europe and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of the best of Eastern Europe, the best of the Adriatic, Prague and Budapest, and Bulgaria. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.